Hello and welcome to our monthly guest lecture on coffee and cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. We have the pleasure today of listening to Dr. Kristen Stasiowski, Assistant Dean of International Programs and Education Abroad, as well as Assistant Professor of Italian Language and Literature at Kent State University, who'll be talking to us about discovering our talents during times of crisis. But rather than ask what drink you're having for the show, Dr. Stasiowski, would you like to begin? Sure, absolutely. Thank you for that introduction. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I have titled today's talk, Writing and Writing Your Life the Dante Way. And there therefore are two forms of writing, writing as though you are an author and writing as though you are an architect to the idea of correcting. Uh, and I hope to be able to speak today on being able to awaken, awaken your potential and pinpoint some of your goals and discover a way forward in tough times. Now, you, the first question anyone should have is, well, why would a literature professor or an assistant dean in an American university have any really good advice that could come from a medieval Italian poem? I, however much you love medieval Italian poetry, not many of my colleagues, myself included, are considered either self-help gurus or mentors for how to lead perfect lives. And although certainly we won't necessarily aim at perfection, the idea that in these challenging times presented by uh, the disruption of COVID, how could and why should we turn to literature in order to help us out a little bit? Uh, and I think we've got some answers in that, and in particular that Dante has some answers. So my hope today in opening this conversation is to, is to show, demonstrate how literature can really be more than just entertainment. Certainly for those familiar with Giovanni Boccaccio, the other great Italian medieval writer uh, who wrote during the time of the Black Death in 1348 in Florence, we know that literature can comment on directly and engage directly with drama and trauma. But for those of you who know Boccaccio, you know that predominantly entertainment is what he's looking for in that book. Uh, and so, although there are many great lessons, and uh, for those of you who have the privilege to take a course or to hear a talk on Giovanni Boccaccio, you know there's certainly more than entertainment. Uh, Dante is not a, a, a subject, it doesn't provide us with a subject that a lot of people pick up and think, well, I'm going to be entertained when I go to hell with his inferno. Uh, most of the time they think they're going to be instructed, and that tends to feel a little bit stodgy at times. So it's, it would be an odd choice, I think, for a lot of people to feel as though they could be rejuvenated and inspired by uh, uh, medieval jaunt through hell. Uh, and yet here we are. So one of the things I think that's really significant uh, in our time is the idea that we're we're kind of lost without a narrative thread. And I found a, a beautiful poem by Edna St. Vincent Millery from her Huntsman What Quarry text. And uh, it reads, upon this gifted age in its dark hour rains from the sky a meteoric shower of facts. They lie unquestioned, uncombined, Wisdom enough to leech us of our ill is daily spun, but there exists no loom to weave it into fabric. This is one of the challenges that I see, especially with my students when they come to me uh, for the first time, mostly taking a literature class, is that they are filled with, as many of their peers are, and as many of us are, with information, bits of data, all kinds of knowledge that they've accumulated, and yet they're fundamentally missing that sense of meaning that comes from being able to pull together all of those different informational bits, or for being able to find a kind of map upon which to place their bits of information. In essence, it's all the meaning that they're still waiting to figure out, waiting to discover, waiting to assemble, waiting to construct. And so what they're learning through a literature class is the way that one can construct a narrative, because as we all know, words are wonderful as individual 
uh, units of meaning, but it's when we put them together that we're most able to communicate, make sense out of our words, and then create communities as a result of that. So I think that the fundamental function of literature that way is to stir the imagination into creating connectivity across great divides. And certainly that's something that I think we all really need right now, being that we're all in individual pockets throughout the world, trying as desperately as we can to reassert ourselves in communities and to find ways to connect to one another. So I think that this particular um, stanza really uh, underlines the problem that we're facing. And certainly uh, when we feel as though we're disconnected and that we're in a bunch of information that we can't understand, that can feel a lot like drowning. And interestingly enough, um, I came across several years ago, a Soundings Magazine article about drowning. And of course, we all have that idea of drowning that comes from the movies, that when you have a person splashing around in the water, you can hear them. I mean, if you're thinking Jaws, you're thinking screaming and crying and yelling and all kinds of activity. And yet, as it turns out, uh, the article underlined just how deceiving that popular culture representation of drowning can be for actual drowning. It turns out, that if someone's actually drowning, you can barely even hear a sound. And so the article was aimed at uh, captains and crew of ships to try and help them to understand what to look for in order to save people. Uh, and in fact, the article ends uh, in a kind of dire tone, but in, in alerting us to action when it's written, sometimes the most common indication that someone is drowning is that they don't look as if they're drowning. They may just look as though they are treading water and staring up at the deck. One way to be sure, ask, are you all right? If they answer at all, they probably are. If they return a blank stare, you may have less than 30 seconds to get to them. So I was presenting at a, a student convocation several years ago, and this is what I chose to read to the students because at the beginnings of an academic year, they are drowning in all kinds of different uh, issues. They're drowning in the fears that they have about starting university for the first time. They're drowning in the information about all the many things that they can do. They're drowning in overload from being with new classmates and roommates and everything else. Uh, and everyone's always asking them, are you all right? Are you all right? Uh, and the ones that answer are not necessarily the ones that you need to worry about. It's the ones that just kind of pass you by with a blank stare, I think are, are the ones that you need to really be concerned with. And I feel as though in this particular moment in our time, it's the silences that are really affecting us. I, I know that a lot of people are checking in with one another and asking how, how, how you're doing and trying to be involved to be an emotional resource. Um, but I also know that there are a lot of people out there who are, are feeling so overwhelmed with everything that's happening with losses of jobs and health issues and fear about what the future holds that sometimes they're just enveloped in a kind of silence that can, can lead them to feel a, an additional sense of isolation and withdrawal. So I, I like to think that in, in identifying the fact that we feel overwhelmed by information and that we may feel as though we're drowning and that there really is no hope kind of places us psychologically and emotionally, perhaps even spiritually, in the same exact situation in which our author Dante places his pilgrim character protagonist at the beginning of his medieval epic poem that, that starts out in a dark wood. Uh, and for those of you familiar with Dante, you know that the first lines of the poem, the most famous in Italian literature, begin in Italian, nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarita, which in English translates to, in the middle of the journey of our life, 
I came to myself within a dark wood where the straight way was lost. This dark wood, of course, represents so many different things, and uh, I'm not here necessarily to give a literature lesson, except to suggest that this is the perfect place in, in which to symbolize a total disorientation and disconnectedness from all of the things that you had hoped for, from all of the things that you love, feelings of complete loss and desolation and isolation are common. And I think that Dante was really very, very good, very astute to pick a dark wood, because if you all were to imagine yourselves right now at night without anyone with you, without a flashlight, with no provisions and standing in a forest, you know that at that moment, your senses are particularly peaked you start to hear things, the rustle of leaves, the sound of birds or bugs. Um, you just all of a sudden feel an, an, an interior depth of desperation that you might not necessarily have the occasion to feel if you were standing in your kitchen feeling a little bit sad. It's really the idea that the, the wood evokes all of these senses of a complete loss of contact or connectivity with everyone. And certainly being also lost, you know, one tree might look like another tree that looks like another tree. And before you know it, you've like Dante lost your path, lost the straight way and don't know how to get out. He continues underscoring just how fearful he was in that circumstance by saying, ah, how hard a thing it is to tell of that wood, savage, harsh, and dense. The thought of it renews my fear. And here you can tell that he's taking a moment and, and being a poet in his own text, saying that in the moment it was scary, but even now thinking about it again, it renews my fear and places me right back in that psychological space. So bitter is it that death is hardly more. When he continues writing, however, he says something really interesting that I think becomes a hook for us to try and figure out our way out of the wood. He says, but to give account of the good that I found there, I will tell of the other things I noted there. Now, when I open these, these lines uh, to my students and we begin a conversation about Dante, they miss this one particular line. They're so intrigued by the fact that they have an author who is uh, stepping in and out of the text, an author who's chosen to have an avatar of himself in the text, and so they're aware of that nice relationship. They're thinking about the darkness of the wood and the scariness of what will soon be animals that will be coming after Dante. And so they brush right over this idea where he says, in fact, but to give account of the good that I found there. And, and when I stop them, they think to themselves, wait a minute, what just happened? Uh, he's, he's lost, he's miserable, he's fearful, he's about to be eaten by something, and he's going to tell of all the good things that he found in this dark wood. And that's where I think they realize that, that Dante gets them. Uh, and I mean gets them on two senses. He hooks them and so they start to believe his, his story uh, and they start to identify with his story and they can see seeds of it in their own lives. Which is to say that for all of us, I believe that if we over time and with the ability to create some meaning uh, and, and as Viktor Frankl would say in his great uh, book, A Man's Search for Meaning, when he talks about logotherapy, he talks about being able to overcome trauma and drama by understanding what's going on and conceptualizing a meaning and a sense to those things. If we, with time and reflection, can do the same thing, oftentimes in our lives when presented with great situations of isolation, death, or trauma, can look back and find that there are the seeds of what we can construct from our lives that can be good. And so that a moment of darkness and loss ultimately can turn into moments of healing and moments of gratitude and moments of rebuilding so as to have a much better life. 
And so that's an important thing to identify as Dante's opening up for us. What becomes a journey into hell is that he already says at the very beginning, but I promise you that there's going to be something good in here. And so I think for all of us right now, some of us who might be feeling like that they're going through hell, it's important to know that there is going to be a way out of it and that there are things in these situations of trauma that we might be able to mine to help us construct a pathway forward somehow. One of the things that I think helps us with that is a key word in Italian that comes up in that first line of the Inferno when he says, in the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself within the dark wood. The word he uses in Italian is ritrovare, which means to find again. And in its reflexive form, ritrovarsi, when he says, mi ritrovai, he's really saying a number of different things that don't quite translate well in English. So the English translation that I'm using is the Oxford edition of John D. Sinclair, in which he says, I came to myself in a dark wood. So when you think about that and you think about coming to yourself, it somewhat sounds as though you perhaps might have just fainted and therefore you came to. And so in that sense, and you'd be right to interpret it this way, you're kind of awakening in a moment in a dark wood in one sense of this word, in one interpreted sense of the, of the word ritrovare, or mi ritrovai, as Dante writes it. So I think awakening is an important thing that it can happen to us when we realize that we're in trouble. So it shocks us into being hugely awake in ways that we might never have known. Oftentimes, that's painful. If you're thinking about a child being born, they come into the world screaming because they're awake in a radically different way than they had been uh, uh, previously. Uh, so being awake and being alive, even if in, the, in that moment as, as a result of pain, uh, is still something that's useful for us when we can leverage it to, to walking forward in a new direction. Another sense, and there are three senses, I think at least, there may be more, I'd be interested to have a word and the way it opens itself up to interpretation. But a second sense I think you can find in the word uh, ritrovare, and in Dante's usage again, mi ritrovai, is that he found himself. So he sort of discovered geographically where he is. So if you say, well, I, I was walking and all of a sudden I found myself in a park. That means that you geographically recognized your physical location as though you were a little GPS. And so I think that being able to pinpoint where you actually are is another second step and second process of trying to figure out how to get to someplace new. If you don't know where you are, you can't possibly identify how to get to any place new or where you might be going. So geographically pinpointing yourself. The third way I think that that term miritrovai can, can communicate something to us is in the sense of I found myself as in I discovered myself. You could say, oh, I found myself when I went on that long hike with friends or on that trip that we took together or on in that activity that we participated in. So as a sense of discovery by either finding yourself again, a rediscovery, or by finding yourself for the first time are all possibilities to be communicated. Of course, Dante scholars would know that in, in Dante saying mi ritrovai, he's talking uh, about finding himself again. And that can also mean in the Dante specific case that he's been in this situation before and that this might not be the first time 
time in which he's encountered a, a complete loss or of coordination or coordinates or uh, that he's somehow disoriented in the world. And so I, I bring that up because I think that although the times that we're living in now feel unique to us, I think that we are prone to go through cyclical emotional and psychological and spiritual cycles in our own lives. And so it's it would be unwise for us to think that we could find the path and uh, embrace and overcome challenges uh, and that we're going to be set for life and it's going to be perfect only then to find out that a few years later or months later, even days later, we're back again in the scenario of feeling a little bit lost and needing to be inspired and somehow motivated to change uh, our status and to move forward again. And so the fact that Dante opens it, this up with a sense of this has happened before, I think oddly gives us the courage to know that even if things keep happening that land us in the dark wood, it can be a place where you are called to awaken yourself, where you're called to locate where you are and figure out where your, your coordinates are and where you're called to discover yourself. And I guess the hope would be that you can be awake and discovering yourself and figuring out where you are on, a, on the map of the world of your life in, in many different phases, because I think there are a lot of different treasures to be found in that. Uh, and I think that that's in part the good that Dante is talking about when he's uncovering and revealing to us the fact that even in all of these things with all these issues, there's something good for us to find. Certainly that makes us think about going to the woods right away uh, and maybe opening our senses up to all of those possibilities. And that's very much what Henry David Thoreau, of course, did. He said, I went to the woods because I wish to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach. And I think that that purposeful, intentional way of setting aside some time in our lives right now to place ourselves either physically in the world of nature or metaphorically somehow spiritually in the world of nature or in your own thinking about your own nature is a really strong statement that you can make about how to start on a new path. And I really, that, I really think that that's where, um, where we can find solace, but also find solutions. Uh, and those two things tend to come together when we can create a space for ourselves in which to be reflective about what's going on. And I, and I think that that's really critical. I think that the amount of information that we're surrounded by and the news reports and the social media and even the good natured um, conversations that we may beginning, be beginning with all of our friends and associates, all of that can also represent a lot of noise. And so if that is something that adds to the feeling of drowning, the first thing to do would be to create a space in which you can be reflective and you can start to at least clean things out. And for those of you who like to start any new project by procrastinating through cleaning, you know that there is strangely and wonderfully a great connection to being able to clean your, your physical space and being able to clean your mental space. So the first thing I would encourage everyone to do think about the ways in which you can create some moments of reflective solitude so that you can think about reflective solution finding. And, and of course, once you do that, I think the first thing you realize is that you are surrounded by a lot of really big challenges. You know, the first thing that happens to Dante after he realizes that he's lost is that he thinks that he can find a way out by walking to a source of light only to realize that he barely has the strength to do it. And then there are all of these animals in the dark wood who come after him, uh, and three animals in particular, uh, a lion, a leopard, and a she-wolf. 
Uh, and so he's got his own um, associated meanings to those three animals, but I'm calling them the, the beasts of doubt. I think that once you're alone with yourself and you're reflective, the first thing that comes to the surface is not necessarily the solution or the solutions for your life. All of the problems somehow arise. I think you sometimes can find yourself to be in, in an echo chamber once you create that moment of space in your psychological um, self or even physically in your house. You might think to yourself, oh great, now I can focus on all of the things that are really bothering me. And that's when the animals come out to get you. And so I would encourage you to take a, a page out of Dante's book and to think what three things might those things be. Dante was quick to identify them, literally the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf, but then there are also symbolic things that those animals represent for Dante. And so if you can identify what it is that's coming after you, is it uh, an imposter syndrome feeling? Is it that you've lost your job? Uh, is it that you don't have childcare? Is it that you want to have a child and you can't? What are the things that are really gnawing at you, that, that make you fearful, that are preventing your way forward, that are causing you to stop and perhaps even turn backwards in your life in some way? So I think that once you can put a name to those things, uh, you can identify then best how we can confront them. Uh, and that's the next step, I think, is figuring out um, what, what the challenge is that is presented by all the change that's happening around us and how to kind of attach a new rudder to your boat so that you are not simply a boat being pushed about by random winds and tossed about by random waves, but instead that you are back in, in a captain position that you can steer things. In fact, Theodore Roosevelt says at this particular phase, I think uh, it'd be appropriate to raise this beautiful quote. He says, in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. The worst thing you can do is nothing. And so as you're thinking about what decisions to make and about what directions to go in, uh, and you're facing these beasts of doubt and the challenges that are presented by change, I think it's really significant to think that you've got to make a decision, but the only decision that's the not great decision is to do absolutely nothing. I think we need to allow ourselves the flexibility of thinking that when we're coming out of a situation of great difficulty, we're not necessarily going to choose differently and end in paradise. We might choose differently and quite like Dante does, realize that we've chosen a dead end or we get so far into a new direction and it's really not the right thing for us. And then at that point, we have to reevaluate a little bit. So when it comes to thinking through the ways in which we can confront this, in particular, thinking about a career shift, I think Dan Pink, author of the, the book, The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, has a really great point when he says, you can make career decisions for two different types of reasons. You can do something for instrumental reasons because you think it's going to lead to something else, regardless of whether you enjoy it or it's worthwhile, or you can do something for fundamental reasons because you think it's inherently valuable regardless of what it may or may not lead to. Now, clearly, that particular uh, idea speaks to my humanist literature professor Hart because when students are choosing their courses, they also choose them for these two reasons, instrumental or fundamental. And I think many of you uh, elections are for instrumental reasons. I'm going to take a science course because I'm going to be a physician. I'm going to take a business course because I'm going to be rich. I'm going to take, a, perhaps we can hope, a language course so that I can speak a language. But when it comes to literature, the first thought is, well, why should I take that? There's no purpose for it. 
And I think that that's one of the, the reasons why we are in a situation of not being able to understand where we are anymore. And it's because if we only ever do something because it's instrumental, then we're only ever going to get a result and, and perhaps not get a larger picture or some larger meaning. So one of the challenges that Dan Pink's uh, ideas here, I think, um, launch in our direction is to really try and evaluate where these two camps are in your own life and to try and at least give them equal weight, um, if, anything, if anything else. So you obviously need to have a job, an income, healthcare, all the necessities of life. And without that, you wouldn't be in a position to do much uh, thinking about your own personal self-fulfillment. And, and certainly that's to be recognized. Abraham Maslow would say that we can't be self-actualized if we're worried about what to eat every single day. But I think that it's worthwhile to think about what motivates us when we have the ability to make a change. Because sometimes when you're thinking everything is lost to me and it's all burned down, then you do have the flexibility for a moment at least to return to yourself and what you might have wanted to do when you didn't necessarily have to think about money. And that intellectual or imaginative exercise, I think is so important for us. And we don't, I think as adults for the most part, have an opportunity to really exercise our imaginations anymore. And I see that with my students because when we talk about curiosity and we talk about fantasy and we talk about imagination, they usually identify the last time in their life when they felt like they could be curious or imaginative or fantastical as when they were very young and allowed to play with toys. And the only play that they get now in their lives seems to be that on a sports field, if at all, um, maybe in esports with video games, um, but certainly they had their moments of Harry Potter or their moments of Star Wars. And that's something that now either they seek in, it in vacation uh, or they seek it uh, in memory, but they certainly are not feeling like they can exercise the imagination or their curiosity in day-to-day -day life. And I think that what we've seen so far in terms of what has happened with the pandemic is that there are a lot of great scientific um, ways in which we can address problems, but it's not only science that can get people through really difficult times. It's not only technology that can provide a solution. People have to imagine in order to be able to come up with outside of the box ideas. And I think that rather than only using the imagination as it's usually spoken about in business in terms of innovation, I think we need to learn, use the imagination to really recenter ourselves on what it is that we're looking to accomplish. And I think a nice link to that uh, comes from the author James Hillman, uh, who's a great Jungian psychologist. He's written several different books. Um, one of them that I like a lot is a book called Healing Fiction. And in it, he talks about the way that literature can be used in this very way, uh, and that the poetic mind is really important for us when developing our own sense of self, our own understanding of our memories, of our pasts, and of our own ability to project into the future the, the self that we might like to be. Uh, he writes, psychoanalysis is a work of imaginative tellings in the realm of poiesis, which means simply making, and which means making by imagination into words. And so in that, that weird sounding P word, poiesis, is really where we get the idea of poetry from, a pulling together of words and a making of meaning through the act of the imagination. And that's certainly something that uh, Dante and other writers before and after him would have been very familiar with, uh, none, not the least of which would be the great Renaissance philosopher, thinker, Marsilio Ficino, whom James Hillman references extensively. So we moderns, I think, tend to be far off from the idea of the connection between spirit and soul and poetry 
and self-fulfillment. Um, but this was sort of, you know, coffee table conversation or coffee talk conversation um, for people of other generations and other epochs. And so the question I think becomes, how do we create a new sense of making, a new poetic understanding of our own lives to try and flip the script or change the narrative, or in, in a different sense, to think about fashioning a new self. Uh, and certainly the idea earlier from our talk today about trying to weave something in a loom, I think provides a really nice way to think about the way that we might like to look at the different threads that are running through our lives and to try and create with a poetic imagination, a new tapestry with them. So what does that turn into in terms of practical things? That means that you might do some reflection in your solitary space about the things that you enjoy, that you've experienced that gave you a unique emotion, the things and the people that have inspired you. And you start writing those down maybe in a journal entry and you start really scavenging, you know, whether it's Lord Byron that says that the best uh, prophet of the future is the past or, or Kierkegaard who, who thinks similarly that, you know, obviously hindsight is 2020, but uh, without it, we're not going to be able to see forward in, in the universe. You really have to think mine your past and mind what happened yesterday in order to start to see a way to weave those threads into something that can be a pathway forward in the future. Uh, and that's and that's an important imaginative exercise for all of us. I think another thing that's really important to do is to ask others for their input about what they see in terms of trends or behaviors or patterns in your own life. I think it's helpful for have your, your best friend, uh, even someone maybe that you, you don't have a close relationship with, uh, the, the further distant they are from you, sometimes the more esoteric their comments might be about what they see as a pattern or what they see as a strength or, or maybe a weakness even, or an undeveloped talent of yours, but do some information gathering. You know, treat it as though it's a little bit of a research project where you take a self-study of your own self first, but then of the way that people, I think, appreciate you. And then I think you can start to get a little bit of a rounded sense. You might be surprised to find that somebody feels as though you're uniquely talented in an area that you had never, ever considered before. And so by this, I mean, don't necessarily think, well, you know, when I was little, I, I used to play with, um, a, I don't know, a, a doctor's medical kit, and obviously I've missed my calling, and, and therefore I should be a doctor. I'd say for the initial stages of this type of conversation with yourself, to not necessarily do concrete thinking. Uh, if you liked playing with a doctor's kit when you were young, or say you had a, a kitchen set somehow when you were young, think about what feelings you had while you were playing with those things and uh, what imaginative exercise that helps you to go through. Because what you might have liked about being a doctor was engaging with people directly who were in pain. And there are many ways in which a person can engage with a person who's in pain. It doesn't have to only be as a physician. It may be that in cooking, you weren't necessarily interested in the food food in your little mini kitchen, but you were interested in the way in which different ingredients could create totally different uh, flavor profiles. And so that experimental nature of yours is something that could be used to take maybe different disciplines of knowledge and create some sort of new product. So it, I think that not trying to tie yourself down at the very beginnings of these conversations so that you're only mining your yourself and your past to squeeze it into a profession. Uh, no, I think it's better for you to let your imagination really take on all new forms and, and to liberate it a little bit so that you can be surprised, I think, by the things that come out of these types of conversations. 
in in the same way, I think um, you know Dante's imagination was running wild when he was in the dark wood, and as he was trying to figure out where to go, you already know he got a lot of help. Uh, Virgil, uh, author of the Aeneid, was sent to him after Dante was seen by a number of very important women in the heavenly sphere to, to be struggling, and so they sent him a guide and a, um, a master and a role model to help him. And I think that mentoring in that way is hugely important. I think that it's uh, actually necessary. As Dante writes in, in the very first Canti of the Inferno, he was stopped by these animals. He was stopped by his own inabilities to move forward, by his own fear. And then Virgil shows up and announces himself uh, by giving a resume. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Virgil, I'm here to save you. He sort of says, I'm, I'm all of these great things. I'm from this place and I have these as parents and I was born in this time. And Dante is so confused by this resume that he's getting, even though it's a resume that, that you know, is easy to understand. Uh, he's so distracted from what he's doing. He's he says, uh, art thou Virgil? Uh, and you kind of have to chuckle to yourself. He was so uncertain that he could be helped by someone so important and so significant and so awesome that he had to, to super verify it. And I want you to imagine for a moment right now that your hero comes to save you in the middle of your life right now, ringing your doorbell, uh, and you open it and you're so dumbfounded that someone could come and save you, your hero, that you sort of let the door slam shut again and then ask, well, you know, who, who is that person? Are you this person? That's how confused Dante was. Uh, and yet, you know, you would think immediately that if your hero came to save your life right now, that you might say, great, everything's going to be great for me. Everything's going to be awesome. I'm on a whole new path. But that's not what happened for Dante. Dante was so scared after taking a couple steps in a new direction with Virgil that he basically asked him for a pep talk. And, and Virgil has to give him one by explaining how it is that he came to be his guide and all the people who told him that, he, that Dante needed help. And so Virgil recounts to Dante that Beatrice, Dante's great uh, love, and the woman for whom he's uh, dedicating himself in this poem and writing this poem, the person who will eventually lead him to see an image of God in the Paradiso. Virgil has to say, well, you know, Beatrice came to me and said all these great things. And then he's recounting this resounding pep talk to Dante. Uh, and it's only really then that Dante says, okay, uh, I guess I'll have the courage to, to move forward. So I think that this shows us again that even when we're in a tough moment, you might have somebody come to you and say, hey, I'm here to help. Uh, and then you might feel guilty because maybe you, you doubt that the help could actually be real or you doubt that the person might be capable of pulling you through or you doubt that it's even really going to ever make a difference. Sometimes I think the real roadblocks we come up, up, that come upon us in life are not the moments where we feel like it's impossible, but rather the moments where we feel like it's useless that you could even muster all the strength of your soul and of your character and of your resources and of your family and of your finances. And you could even build a great monument to some new something in your world. But really, what would the point be? Because, because nothing's ever gonna be this way or nothing's ever gonna be that way. Or at the end of the day, what's the purpose of all of it? And so, you know, Dante struggles even when he gets all the help that he needs I think demonstrate to us that we've got to find a way not only by being helped from the outside, but searching deeply for that motivation in the inside 
that, that can say, okay, there's something in this for me. And so even in that, Virgil has to give consistent pep talks where he appeals to Dante's sense of, well, these people that you admire and these heavenly figures, that everybody's cheering for you. And I'm going to take you and I'm going to show you a lot of things in hell and I'm going to educate you and help to reform you and so on and so forth. And then I promise you that something good is going to await you. And it's only then when Dante realizes the promise that he has and and the gift of what awaits him, does he write this beautiful line in Canto Two? He says, as little flowers bent down and closed with the chill of night, when the sun brightens them, stand all open on their stems. Such I became with my failing strength and so much good courage ran into my heart that I began as one set free. So, so much poetry there. And you can imagine sort of frosted, closed flowers after those first early fall nights, uh, all of a sudden when the sun starts to shine on them, opening and unfurling themselves, so too was Dante that he was able to begin again on his journey toward all that is good. And I, I really love that image. I think that you know, students at this point, even though they're only in Canto two, probably feel as though they've taken on more than they they anticipated in a semester about poetry. But with this particular idea of the metaphor of the flower, they see Dante's poetic power and his imaginative grace. And they understand that they too are, are kind of bent over and a little bit frozen and a little bit chilled. And that when the right words come and the imagination awakens itself again, they can slowly start to defrost and rise up and then open themselves up to all the beautiful things that, that are before them. And yet not without recognizing that there are going to be some ugly moments and some difficult times and some definite challenges, but that they've got the support of a mentor or a guide, that they've got a reinvigorated sense of motivation, and that they do have a promise of something that positive that's going to happen to them later on. So I think in these first couple Kanti, Dante really gives to us a sense of how we might begin to evaluate where we are at what we might be working toward and the way in which the universe could be pushing us in a direction that's ultimately going to provide a glorious port uh, like the one that he'll see in Paradiso. So with that in mind, I really would love to uh, open up this conversation uh, to anyone who might be listening in order to try and engage, ask some questions and maybe talk a little bit more about the ways in which literature has been an influence or is helping to be a balm right now during these challenging times. Thank you so much. I am just processing everything. That was really good, though. I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna give you a little. Clap. Yeah, that was really, that really was beautiful really good. and inspiring. Well, thank you. It's all Dante. <laughs> well, it was all you, quite frankly, and how you, you know, were able to take the words and just um, spin it in a way that I think a lot of us maybe take for granted. I know. I know for myself. Um, I mean, I've, I've got, I mean, you can see behind me, my, my collection, my collage of stuff. Um, some might call it something else, but I, they're the things that make me happy. I have um, a lot of books that I have wanted to read. And I'll be honest, uh, with a small child and an insane dog and all the other responsibilities. And, you know, you don't have to be, have children to be tired, trust me. Um, it's always on the list of the things to do. And, and one thing I, I actually found, because I'm, I'm an anthropologist. Those that know me know that that, that is what I do. It is my passion, studying cultures. But 
The other thing is, is I like the effect of literature on society and how the material elements, the things that, you know, basically books move people. And one of the things that has been on my mind for years, I always wanted to read the Gnostic Bible, always. And it's huge. It's massive. But I, you know, there's always these kind of like conspiracy theories behind it, right? Of, you know, the book of Judas or the secret book of this or that. And I was listening to a podcast completely unrelated the other day. And you could tell the person uh, who was running the podcast had been inspired by the Gnostic Bible. And I went, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go read it. So I picked up this giant Gnostic Bible. I had had this for 10 years. And I'm, my husband comes in, he sees me reading this giant Gnostic Bible. But I was so curious. And I thought, you know, again, uh, and we'll dive into this in a, a bit in a second. But, you know, we've been so self-consumed about all these issues we've, we've had uh, in the past year or less than a year. And because we've been forced to be at home, at least in my case, it's forced me to really tap into the things that I've always wanted to read for, for curiosity purposes, what have you, that I thought, well, well, it's 10 o'clock at night. I've got nothing going on. Why don't I just read it? And I found myself going, oh my gosh, that's so fascinating. I didn't know that. Did you? And I'm like poking my husband. Did you know? And he's like, yeah, okay. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> but, you know, these things about um, that if I hadn't been in a situation where I didn't have anywhere to go. I don't know if I ever would have taken the time because I would have always had a reason as to why I couldn't do X or I couldn't do Y. And I think there's something to be said about letting your imagination run wild. I mean, now's really the time to really take it by the horns. I know for myself in terms of the job search, I had a list of about, before the lockdown, I had about five or six different avenues that I was considering. Um, and and honestly, I think it's because of lockdown, I've been able to really narrow it down because I've had the time to really think about, does this, does this path make sense or am I doing it because it's instrumental or am I doing it because it's fundamental? And those are the things I've realized, you know, I'm doing this because I feel like I have to, not because I actually want to. And since the job market is what it is, you might as well think about what you really want to do and dedicate your time towards building up a resume to fit that model. Because at the end of the day, you want a career shift, not just a job to get through the day. Sometimes that's what you have to do. But if you have the luxury and the privilege to be able to make that choice, you might as well dedicate your time to that. I so agree with you. And, and I, think, I, think, I think you identified something I think also really important. Uh, you'll notice that, you know, when you go to buy a self-help book in a bookstore to make a career shift, you've got a choice between here are the three ways in which you do that, or the five ways in which you do this, or the seven ways, or the habits of these people. Tw you know, there's always a list of 20 things that you can do in order to make concrete, informed, practical, and immediate change. And you'll notice that what my talk didn't do is give you really any practical things that you need to immediately go out and do. It was basically an invitation to allow yourself to follow non sequiturs, to do things that make no sense whatsoever, to sit and read the Gnostic Bible if that's what feels good to you. Because I think that if we direct ourselves only ever to being simply productive and following one numbered schedule after another, that's working exactly counter to what has been helpful and productive about great societies who've really added innovation you have to be able to do things with the imagination that don't make any sense. And I liken it when I talk to my students about it to the difference between a martial artist and a Jedi. 
A martial artist has every technique for every situation, and they are trained experts with knowledge bits that help them to confront the challenges that they can find. But, but what's a Jedi? A Jedi has this mystical, bizarro, strange thing called the Force that somehow allows them, when they tap into it, to do just about anything. Whether they're trained or not trained, it's an element that for us, I think, we can think of as a perspective or as just an ability of kinds. And the imagination is to us what the force is to a Jedi. It is not a, it's not a rubric, it's not a plan, it's not a project, it's an ability. It's like, you know, when Lorenzo in Magnifico is talking about his family and the inheriting of the greatness of the money that his father and grandfather had. He didn't say, I inherited power from my family, I inherited Palazzi from my family. All of that, yes, is true. But in the Renaissance, he says, I inherited a method. And so what you get out of the Renaissance and the, the Medici of Florence's great dominion in the Renaissance is, is a sensibility that is developed, not necessarily a playbook. And yet we are so hesitant, I think, in the world today to give up on the playbook and the hopes for a sensibility that we end up drowning again in the same, very same informational nightmare as opposed to doing what you said has been helpful to you, trying to, in essence, see what the Gnostic Bible might do to help you define a career. That's exactly the way that innovation happens at this point. I, I will be honest. I don't know if the Gnostic Bible is going to help me find a job, but I do think it was very interesting. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, maybe. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, I didn't well, learn. I didn't know that the Gnostics thought that the creator of the world was actually Lucifer. Hmm. That's an interesting little tidbit. Take well, I mean, there that. again, it's all in translation, right? I mean, Lucifer, Lucifero in Italian, mm -hmm. the bringer of light, a handsome devil, so to speak. Uh, and really what you could just say is that he had a dissenting view uh, from the way the universe was being run, right? Thought he could do it on his own. He was a change insurgent, uh, an innovator. Granted, uh, he innovated in a direction that was associated uh, with uh, not goodness, light, and awesome. But if you're thinking, you can either literalize an, an interpretation of a, of a book in a, in, a, in a chapter and say, what do we do with dissenting views? Do we isolate and punish them? Or do we bring them into a conversation in the hope that we can construct something more positive out of, out of that dissenting view? And so yeah. leveraging resources, and, and it's that, it's that very nature of the imagination that when you're reading the Gnostic Bible, you could be thinking to yourself, well, this doesn't apply to my day-to-day -day life. Perhaps not quite literally, but with the imagination as an ally, it's like you applying the, the Jedi force to that particular document and creating a transferable power into another area or sector of your life. Well, and I think that's a good point, Mary, I'll get to you in a second. But one thing I did find very interesting, again, applying to my own life, is I didn't realize that the uh, Gnostics were huge proponents of knowledge. And I had assumed that the reason they were considered heretical was because, um, I mean, I don't know, I didn't even know why I thought they thought they were heretical. I assumed that they were, you know, sacrificing kids, who knows. But the reality was, is that they didn't feel like they needed a, a head leader. And so the various religious organizations had issue with that and that what they actually believed was the importance of knowledge and reading as many, many sources as possible in order to figure out the truth within yourself. And I thought, wow, that is something I could definitely take away within, you know, my own search. So yeah, maybe, you know, now that I think about it, it obviously is something I could take away in terms of how I approach my life and, and everything else. So uh, Mary, did you have any questions? Uh, I don't know any questions, but I had a couple of observations about um, the discussion that I thought were really interesting. Um, 
when you were discussing the the vocabulary of, of that came to versus found versus discover kind of idea, um, kind of two things came to me. One was um, that there's both a physical and an, a sort of metaphysical aspect to that, right? Like, and so I, I sort of was thinking about the importance of, of cleaning your space and, and that sort of physical and mental relationship um, as you were talking through that, but like, it was interesting that that word kind of gave you both avenues of that. And I think that the before times, I think people didn't disconnect mind from body quite the way that, that we, we do now. Um, and I think that we as Americans in particular can neglect the importance of that physical reality in finding yourself, right? And, and, and just being barefoot in the grass sometimes, you know, that sort of aspect of it. Um, but also, as you were talking, all I kept thinking about was Alice in Wonderland and the conversation with the caterpillar about how if you don't know where you are, then it doesn't matter. Um, Absolutely. And so the, the importance of directionality in that in that moment. And then um, I thought towards the end of your talk, when you were talking through um, sort of the, the list of things you should ask yourself and journal about and, and that sort of addressing of, of doubts and and that space of impossible versus useless. Um, and, and sort of the difference between a Herculean task, right, and a Sisyphean task. Like, does it have a directionality to it? Is there a goal, right? And, and I think that that's hugely important, especially when you're facing something difficult, is to have an end in mind. And that is an incredibly an imaginative um, act, right, is that you have this vision and this directionality, and it makes those struggles in between have a purpose and have, um, have a meaning and have um, sort of a method to the pain, right? Um, and, and one of the things that I've, you know, really harped on in my own sort of career professionally is, is that the, the role of a leader is to do two things, to acknowledge the fire their people walk through every day and to make the destination worth it. Um, because if you don't have that, all of the little kind of uh, small cuts of the day wear you down horribly. And, and you've got to find ways to, to restore yourself. And so much of that comes to, down to, is it worth picking up your armor and, and carrying it forth into this battle again, or is it not? Um, so I think this, this discussion of imagination was really kind of inspiring for me because it really does make that reflection time and that, that decision-making and that goal-setting such an important and critical exercise. You know, you in turn, I think, have raised a lot of really important issues. I think that when when you're thinking about work within a job, obviously you've got the mission. Uh, if you are a garbage collector, the work is collecting garbage. But if you have a leader in that position, there are ways in which they can accomplish that task by saying, we're going to be the best garbage collectors and I want not a scrap of anything left on the streets uh, by the time that you're done. And we're going to be efficient about doing our routes and we're gonna make sure that everything is uh, you know, collected on time. Uh, and you could be inspired even by that level of proficiency within a job. But what the imagination does and where I think you have really great leaders and less in particular, great manager, is where you can say, it's not about we're just collecting garbage. It's that we're remaking the world as a better place. 
And you can really flip the script in that way and create a larger, higher calling to things whereby people are going to feel that much more committed to not leaving a scrap of garbage on the ground because they're not being only motivated by the idea of a salary or a commission or a raise or by an accolade that they're going to get by having a prize given to them as an employee of a month or that they're going to get extra vacation days. In other words, uh, as I say to my students all the time, I think that uh, people will work when compensated. But what you really want to do is find the mission that makes people work when motivated. Uh, and so from that standpoint, it's finding the calling, finding the purpose, finding the reason. And, and it can be both grand or, or not so grand, but it has to be communicated. And it has to be something that creates a sense of community and a, and a sense of buy-in from all the stakeholders there. And I think that when it comes down to us individuating that, that reality in our own lives, we can tend to struggle because if we're feeling a little bit lost, we might need the hand that pulls us out of the quicksand or out of the water before we can even have the courage again taking a deep breath to look around ourselves and to dig deep and find that motivation if it's not being given to us. And so the disorientation that can even come from kind of being saved and now what do I do with the extra time that I have if I've lost or transitioned into a new job or what do I do with the extra time that I have that I'm not commuting uh, and then the pressure to always be productive in some sense. The imagination is productive in its own different way. It has its own chronology and it has its own development. And so, um, you know, you thinking through literature and an example of Alice in Wonderland and the Caterpillar, again, is not dissimilar to what Anne was saying about the Gnostic Bible. It kind of replaces you in this, you're opening up a window into what somebody else's experience might have been. And that window then opens you up, I think, to, to continuing to create that narrative thread of what has meaning to you and what can propel you forward. No, I think that that's really interesting. Um, one thing that just sort of, um, and I think before we wrap this up, that just came to mind, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Italian verb arrangiarsi, which uh, basically, Absolutamente. yeah, yes. but rough translation basically means to make the most of the things around you. So this is applied uh, in many instances um, in the Italian culture to those who live in the mountains, those who lived in the South, especially those that were, um, you know, dealing with hardships in terms of finances and everything else. Um, something about arrangiarsi and being able to make the most of a particular set of circumstances, I think, can be applied in this sense, absolutely, in that we are we're facing difficult times and, and there's a lot of uncertainties. And I think it, in a weird sort of way, it forces us to be creative. And I know the BBC had done something quite recently on creativity. And one of the things that some of the, the, the psychologists they interviewed said is that when you have everything at your disposal, if you're a creative or you are a creative person, it can actually make it harder for you to be creative because you uh -huh. need to have those boundaries in order to click in. Okay, here are my boundaries. Now I need to figure out how to be creative in order to work around them. So I think in some respects in this situation, I would not be surprised if people are really forced to become more creative in the surroundings that they're in and really think about how they can maximize their potential because all these barriers have been put up around them. Um, I know for me, this podcast has definitely been an outcome of this situation. Um, but I think for other people as well, it's, as you've mentioned, it's forcing them to think, okay, these are things that I'm good at. These are things that I'm aware that I was possibly good at. 
Maybe there are things that friends have noticed that I hadn't really taken into consideration prior. And maybe this is the opportunity for me to jumpstart a possible new trajectory for myself that if all of the opportunities have been available to me, I would have just dismissed it and ignored it completely. I don't know. Any thoughts? Absolutely. And I think you've got a great anthropological perspective on something that is a unique quality, I think, to to Italy. And when you walk around in Italy, I think you find tremendous acts of enormous creativity in the face of a variety of obstacles that may seem insurmountable, like Italian bureaucracy. You know, there's nothing so beautiful as watching an Italian navigate creatively any number of things. Creative parking, for which they are teased. Uh, the creativity, Creative driving. Creative driving. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, there's this, there's, I don't know, an outstanding, astounding ability for Italians in particular, I think, uh, to make the idea of arrangiarsi into really something artful and masterful. Uh, I mean, even in terms of the ways in which they might uh, re restructure a bicycle in order to be able to have it fit four or five more people or more groceries or whatever. It's, uh, they're kind of like, uh, to make reference to the United States-based television show MacGyver from the 1980s, you know, if you would hand that character a potato and a piece of gum and a paperclip, he would somehow figure out his way out of jail or, or to make a flying machine of some kind. And I think that if you can uh, use that same level of creative imagination, and we're asked to do that now because we don't always have what we need. And certainly, again, that has an application to work. You're not given the budget that you need. Okay, what do you do with it? You're not given the maybe approvals that you need. How do you be creative about communicating so that you can get your needs met? Um, I think that, that the challenge to us having everything that we have is exactly as your colleagues from the BBC uh, said, is that sometimes we, we have way too many tools and it eliminates the creativity. Um, you know, if you had an action figure growing up that didn't have a leg, you created a, an imaginative series of scenarios whereby that leg wasn't needed or perhaps it was a sign of a superpower. Where did that imagination go and how do we bring it back and how do we then apply it in more useful ways in our lives now? And even, I would say, in less use, useful ways. Uh, and, and why do we always have to have something that's, uh, that's useful? I mean, uh, from that standpoint, for those of you who have children, if you go in and take all the toys away that are not useful, what would be left? My keys, and she would love that. <laughs> Anne, you put your finger <laughs> in the wound. <laughs> well, uh, yes, like it's likely because you buy you buy a child a toy for Christmas that costs a billion zillion pounds, and then all of a sudden you realize that they want the box it came in. <laughs> so yes, but that's creativity at work for you. <laughs> I was going to say, fortunately, we don't have a bazillion gazillion pounds. So, and and the joys of having been a daycare teacher years and years ago, I realized a long time ago you can do a whole lot with a cardboard box so. <laughs> yes indeed yes indeed touche <laughs> and long live the imagination <laughs> absolutely well that's it from us at coffee and cocktails with your host dr ann wand i'd like to thank dr Kristen stasiowski for her wonderful presentation this afternoon and for our live audience member mary who has made this experience that much more enjoyable if you enjoyed the guest lecture you can access dr stasiowski's powerpoint on our patron page this lecture is dedicated to the memory of Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.